Good morning, everyone. As was stated already, my name is Trevor Pullen, and I am the pastor at Victory Baptist Church in Salem, West Virginia. And we are here this week visiting my wife and my son. And I just wanted to let you know that on the evening before we began our trip down here, it was a balmy negative two degrees in Salem, West Virginia. So believe me when I say we are very happy to be here this week. And it's an especial honor to be with you this morning, the first day of the year 2023. And because this is a day that somewhat sets the stage for the year to come, I think it's appropriate that we examine the foundational truth of our faith this morning. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this morning we are going to be looking at how the love of God was demonstrated at the cross of Calvary. And the text that we're going to be using this morning is from Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8. But before we approach the text this morning, I want you to think with me for a moment about the concept of love. Love is a very difficult thing to define. We love so many things in this world of varying values and varying stages of consequence. But it comes as a principle that whenever a true love is expressed in the heart, it is manifested in an action. For example, a parent's love for a child. If a parent has the love of a child in their hearts, it is going to come out in the way that they act toward that child. They will care for the child. They will feed the child. They will be up in the night with the child. They will change the disgusting diapers over and over again for that child simply because of the love that they have in their heart for that child. And on the flip side, if a parent says that they love a child, and yet they do not care for them, they find every opportunity possible to abandon their responsibilities toward that child, I think we all would look at that situation and say, despite what that person says about the love that they have, they truly do not have the love for that child in their heart. Love is always demonstrated by action. Scripture speaks abundantly about God's loving kindness toward his people. And God's loving kindness is so much more than a simple feeling in the heart of God. In the same way, God's love is demonstrated by the actions that he takes toward his people. And now we come to our text, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. It says... For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Now, in order to have a proper understanding of this love that God demonstrated on the cross of Calvary, we must first take a sober look at how this passage describes us as individuals. We are described in two ways, helpless and ungodly. To be helpless, it means to be without strength, to be weak, infirm, or feeble, having no ability in ourselves to manipulate any situation around us, having no power whatsoever. And then we are described as ungodly. Well, perhaps it would be helpful to describe what it means to be godly. These are the things that God and human beings can share, the characteristics of action. God is righteous. God is holy. God is morally perfect. God is loving. God is kind. But we are not described in those terms. We are ungodly. We are described with the exact opposite of all those good descriptions. We, in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, are unrighteous, unholy, corrupt, loveless, cruel. Apart from Christ, we are sinners who have no ability in and of ourselves to change our status before a holy and righteous God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it describes this again in perhaps more vivid terms. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I just described every single one of us in this room apart from the grace of God revealed through Jesus Christ. For we indeed all begin our lives dead in trespasses and sins because of the sin nature that we inherited from our first parents. And because of this, this prince of the power of the air is working to supernaturally motivate us toward fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of our eyes, the desire of our hearts toward ungodliness and sin. And because of that, we are in a position where we are deserving of God's righteous wrath against sin. We, apart from Christ, are deserving of his punishment. So, what did God do to express his love toward people such as these? Christ died for them. In 1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 24, it describes how Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 
God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the second person of the Trinity, taking on the form of a man, living a perfect life. And yet he goes to the cross for the purpose of bearing the sin of man in his flesh and dying under the weight of that sin and punishment. But then he rose again three days later in a declaration that the price for sin had been paid in full and that he himself is God. And he ascended back to heaven where he awaits at this moment for his return and the full redemption of his people. That is how God expressed his love for sinners. He died for them on the cross. He took their sin upon himself. In order to demonstrate how profound and borderline scandalous this concept is, the Apostle Paul continues in our passage. He says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gives us a human example. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. Perhaps the closest example of this that we can see in our society is the sacrifice that a soldier makes on the battlefield in the defense of this country. When somebody lays down their life in order to protect the freedom of others. And we find when someone makes that sacrifice that it is an ultimate example of devotion, love, and patriotism for our country. And yes, that is worthy of honor and glory. But what Jesus Christ did on the cross is an infinitely more glorious expression of his love for his people. Because he didn't die for people that loved him or were worthy of honor. He died for his enemies. He died for people that hated him. He took the punishment for people that had lived in rebellion against his will. I'm afraid that if you are like me and you have spent the vast majority of your life in church, that hearing a repetition of the fact that Jesus Christ died for you, perhaps it's lost its impact a little bit. Perhaps that truth is something that we sort of take for granted, as if that was sort of gospel 101, and now that we have matured in our Christian life, we can move on to bigger and more profound truths. But this in and of itself is the most profound truth that is contained in all of Scripture. And I want to give you an illustration right now that will help to spur your thoughts in that direction. But I must say before I give the illustration that this is not a sufficient example. Simply something to stimulate our thoughts in the right direction of realizing this profound truth. Imagine with me for a moment a kingdom. And this kingdom is ruled by a benevolent king who is beloved by his subjects. And yet, a small group of men decide that they are going to form a coup against this king. 
They devise a plot to capture the king, to kill him, to take over his throne, to take upon themselves all of the authority and honor that is vested in this king. But as they are forming their plot, the plot is found out. It is foiled. These men that decided to make a coup against the king are captured. They are put on trial. And as the trial concludes, what is the verdict that comes down upon them? These men deserve to die for their treason against the king. The gallows are built. The crowd gathers. The men are walked up one by one onto the platform and nooses are placed around their necks. And just at that very moment, the king emerges from his palace. He walks solemnly toward the gallows. He climbs the step himself and, make a and makes a proclamation to the people that are gathered there. He says that he wishes to demonstrate his love for these people that have rebelled against them by pardoning them of their crimes. But in order for him to maintain his justice in the kingdom, he must take the penalty for their crime upon himself. And one by one, he goes to each man and removes the noose from their neck, tells them to walk to the side. They have been freed. And he takes one of the nooses, places it around his own neck, and tells the executioner to pull the lever to let the trapdoor drop. And at this moment, the crowd begins to roar. The crowd is there saying, you can't do this. This is not fair. These people deserve to die for the crimes that they have committed against the crown. These people deserve the punishment that they were going to get. You don't deserve to take that punishment upon yourself. You are a good king. You have been nothing but benevolent toward us. You have been nothing but a good sovereign in our kingdom. We are not going to allow you to take the punishment of these rebels upon yourself. And yet in a moment, the lever is pulled and the king dies in the place of his people in order to demonstrate his love and justice in setting these criminals free. But like I said, this illustration is not sufficient to demonstrate the love that was bestowed upon us at the cross of Calvary. For in Christ, it was not simply a human king who took the punishment upon himself. It was almighty God, the everlasting I am, the second person of the Trinity who has been eternally clothed in glory. The creator of the heavens and the earth is the one that took the punishment upon himself. Jesus did not have a mix of people in his kingdom who loved him and a mix of people who hated him. The scriptures make it clear that all have been corrupted by sin. In Romans chapter 3, it says, There is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Jesus took the punishment for sin upon himself for people who were rebellious against him. And there was not one who was found righteous in the sight of God apart from Christ. And Jesus not only pays the penalty of their sin, but he redeems the people who once hated him. He raises them to spiritual life. He gives them a new heart. He gives them a new spirit. He fills them with his Holy Spirit and he causes them to live a a life filled with the presence and the power of God. One Puritan writer put it this way, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, athirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all my tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorned crown that I might be clothed in a glory diadem. He bowed his head that I might uplift mine, expire, excuse me, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze in unclouded brightness, expired that I might forever live. How can we not live a life of surrender to a savior who has loved us in this way? How can we not spend our lives in perpetual worship for the King of kings and Lord of lords who took the punishment that we deserve upon himself on the cross? God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we have been loved in this way, if we have been cleansed from our sin, if we have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can face this new year that we now enter with confidence. Not a confidence that we have in, a, in and of ourselves, but a confidence that has been given to us because of the love of our Savior that has been so richly provided to us. This year, you all know more than most that life can change in an instant. The hurricane that you all went through just a few months ago was proof that one moment in our lives we can be experiencing total peace and calm, and then a storm can run through, 
and we see nothing but destruction as far as the eye can see. Therefore, we know firsthand that in this year to come, we are going to face fear. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we can approach that fear without trepidation. And we can trust the words of Jesus Christ when he says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We trust in a Savior who has forgiven us of our sins, and yet he is the sovereign king of all who is in control over all that takes place in our lives, and we can trust in his overcoming of our earthly struggles. And we can indeed echo what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, and we can be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, we can experience the profound and abiding peace that is given to us through the Holy Spirit. In this year to come, we are going to face struggle. But this one who died for us had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Our Savior who died for us empathizes with our struggles as human beings. For he took on flesh and blood just as we have. And we can go to him at a moment's notice because he has reconciled the relationship to a holy and righteous God. And in this year to come, we are going to face hardship and loss and pain in a myriad of ways among a congregation of this size. But we trust and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that because God has bestowed his love upon us by the work that Christ accomplished on the cross, that he is engaged in a work of sanctifying us for his purposes, that he is continuously conforming us to the image of Christ, and that through the circumstances that we live day to day, he is causing the fruit of the Spirit to be demonstrated in our lives. Do you know this love that I have sought to describe this morning? Has the love of God truly been shed abroad in your heart? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? I pray that if you do not, that today is the day that the Lord brings you to a point of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. For the great message of the gospel is that all who simply believe in the name of Jesus Christ 
will be forgiven of their sins and be given the gift of eternal life in him. And if you do know him, if you have experienced this profound love, may we take this truth into our hearts today and may it spur us to an attitude of daily, moment-by-moment worship for the King who has redeemed us. And may the Holy Spirit work in our hearts to bring the message of this great love to a dark and dying world that is in such desperate need of the grace of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, What can we say in the light of a love so brilliant, so undeserving? Thank you, Father, for the grace that you have given us through Christ. Thank you for the love that you demonstrated on the cross of Calvary. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would mold us more into the image of your Son, and that we would be good vessels that demonstrate your love to this world. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.